0: Welcome to Makers and Shakers of Chinese History, I'm Mark. In this episode, I'll bring you the story of the granddaddy of rebels in China's history. Yeah, that's right, you heard me correctly. There were rebels in Chinese history. One in particular was named Shu Chuan. So why do people call him the granddaddy of rebels, you might be wondering? Well, he's considered the most peculiar in history. And get this. He was close to bringing down the entire ruling empire at that time. Not sure if I should applaud or hang my head in shame for him, but nonetheless he totally scores epic points for his methodology. What did he do exactly? It's a fact that Chinese history is full of peasant uprisings and rebellions, but there was one that took place in the 19th century that stood out among others. Why? Check this out. The leader of the rebellion gained unprecedented momentum by claiming to be the brother of the one and only Jesus Christ. Talk about a mind job. The more interesting part is that some believed it, even though Jesus lived and died almost 2,000 years ago. Well, this title nevertheless garnered the Taiping Rebellion, which lasted for 14 years, spreading across the lesser half of China, and almost becoming the new ruling party of that era. Okay, so a little background on Hong, the leader of this rebellion. He was born in 1814 in Guangdong province. Record has it that he wasn't actually the ideal student, as he was a disillusioned Confucian scholar who had failed multiple civil service exams. Needless to say, he was pretty upset after the frustrating failures, and one day, in a feverish state, it's said that Hong dreamed of a journey to a heavenly land where, quote, a white-bearded old man told Hong that he was God. Yeah, you're probably thinking what I thought. Wow! This guy was definitely under the influence of something. Hong excitedly revealed his dream to his family and relatives, and his message began to spread, which brought him followers. In 1843, naturally, Hong and his followers set up a group known as the God-Worshipping Society. Yes, a society that worships him, apparently. But that wasn't all the religion was about. What Hong did was make some changes to Christianity to cater to the needs of the Chinese society then. And his method soon gained traction, first in China's southwest Guangxi. Okay, bear with me on a little bit of history. So, Hong was originally from Guangdong province, which bordered Guangxi, and his success in his neighboring province arose from an uprising called the Jintian Uprising. At that time, that area of the country was just called South China. The First Opium War pretty much changed everything in 1840. Before the war, Guangdong was the only gateway for foreign trade. After the First Opium War, another four ports in China's eastern coastal area were forced open to trade with all foreign powers. More ports meant fewer opportunities for the people of Guangdong causing its economy to decline and a large number of jobless and impoverished citizens. It was these people who particularly longed for reforms to the society they were living in. Hence, a perfect opportunity for our man of discussion. Another reason for Hong's rise in that region was that Confucianism wasn't really liked and at that time there was almost a religious vacuum except for adoration for some folk gods or immortals. So it was pretty safe to say that people there tended to accept a new religion more easily. So you see, the timing couldn't have been better. But what exactly did Hong Chuan do to make his God-worshipping society very appealing? First, Hong experimented with something I like to call religious improvisation where he disregarded the Christian doctrine that no other people can be worshipped except God, Hong allowed his followers to continue the Chinese practice of ancestral worship rites. But here's the kicker. He deified himself as the second son of God, or the younger brother of Jesus Christ. He also included his sister and some of his close followers in the big family of God, presenting God in human form and a more amenable way. Therefore, the general populace thought the God-worshipping society Hong created was very accessible to them. His second revision that he made to Christianity was moving heaven to earth. Hong insisted that in his holy dream with God's presence and revelation, he was told one of his tasks was to eradicate all the demons plaguing the Chinese people and the demons were nobody other than the ruling empire and the officials, no matter what their ethnicity was. Hong blamed the Qing rulers for all the distress, hardship and darkness in society, which of course resonated with the people in Guangdong and Guangxi. Though it may sound crazy to believe, famine and unemployment made peasants more susceptible to those who could give them a ray of hope and the limited amount of arable land added to all the social stress. So the promise of land for all from the God-worshipping society soon brought Hong hundreds of thousands of followers. In 1851, Hong proclaimed his own dynasty, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom in Nanjing, with Hong as the Heavenly King and other commanders as the kings of the East, West and so on. This method of manipulation and recruitment could arguably be one of the most effective advances against one of the greatest empires in Chinese history. So another reason this movement caught a lot of traction was that in his Taiping Kingdom, Hong emphasised that both Chinese and Westerners were God's children, and that men and women were equal. He advocated, in the basic document called The Land System of the Heavenly Kingdom, that all men and women, every individual of 16 years and upwards, shall receive land. Women were allowed to take part in examinations. All these to some extent stood in contrast with the doctrines of Confucianism. So Hong's Taiping Kingdom was very appealing to the grassroots suffering from a hard life. So far so good, right? Well, here's where things went haywire. Hong described Confucius as a messenger from God to help Chinese people learn about the Almighty, and even accused Confucius of mingling with the Qing dynasty, which he called demons. He made up a story about Confucius being punished by God for leading the people astray. In his story, there was plenty of whipping, as Confucius asked for mercy repeatedly, in which God prohibited him from returning to the earth. As a result of this revelation, Hong burned all Confucian books and Buddhist statues in his house. Eventually, this defacing went public, as even Buddhist temples and Taoist gardens were burnt down. Of course, this didn't sit well with the literati, for whom Confucianism was a noble means to cultivate oneself, regulate the family, govern the state, and bring peace. Needless to say... This sparked the beginning of the end of Hong's movement. After capturing Nanjing in 1853, the Heavenly Army planned to spread as far north as Tianjin to take the capital Beijing, but was toppled before they could reach the capital city. Though the Beijing attack failed, by this point the Heavenly Kingdom had possessed much of South and Central China, defeating two major military bases of the Qing dynasty and centred on the Yangtze River Valley. So you're probably wondering how this crusade comes off its hinges. The same culprit in the undoing of any organisation... internal discord. At this point of victory after victory, an internal crisis was brewing up and soon slowly spread. After taking Nanjing as the capital and becoming the heavenly king, Hong and other kings in the kingdom began to live it up in magnificent mansions and sumptuous palaces. Records have it that some kings weren't happy with the wealth distribution, which gradually led to internal feuds, defections and corruption. So of course heads definitely rolled, starting with the East King, then the North, with their families following suit. To make things worse, Hong was distraught indulging himself in entertainment with his many concubines. Not permissible in the Bible, by the way, but Hong had clearly gone astray. He ended up retreated from the main political and administrative role to concentrate on more spiritual and religious pursuits, with a large portion of his time spent on, get this, rewriting the Bible. That would be an interesting read. By 1860, the Heavenly Kingdom's next endeavour was to march towards Shanghai, which was a very important gateway for foreign trade. might have been a success, but many different parties were assembling against him, which was brewing a vicious war in their midst. Interestingly enough, the British and French forces, being more willing to deal with the Qing administration, came to the assistance of the imperial army, mainly for a couple of reasons. First, Hong's Christian doctrines were not acceptable to many Westerners, many of whom saw Hong's claim to be the brother of Christ as heresy. Yeah, go figure. Also, they didn't want to contend with the uncertainties of the heavenly kingdom and had to defend their own interests in Shanghai. The Western forces began to support the Qing Empire with modern artillery and Western troops on a large scale for the first time in China. Well, long story short, after a series of battles where the West allied with the Empire, Hong and his kingdom were decimated by an overwhelming number of foreign and national troops, superior weaponry and perhaps divine judgment. Wondering what happened to the Heavenly King Well, some say Hong suffered from a lingering illness and ended up committing suicide after his capital was besieged. His son succeeded him on the throne, which collapsed within a month. And so ended the Peasants' Kingdom, which lasted 14 years and spanned 18 provinces. The massive movement, once in full swing against the Qing dynasty, was said to have claimed more than 20 million lives during the 14 years. Pretty droll stuff, huh? one thing's for sure and that is it definitely goes down in history as the rebellion that almost worked out but you have to admit claiming to be related to jesus would probably make anyone stop and think well that's all we have for you today thanks for joining us on makers and shakers of chinese history and hearing about this peculiar individual who shook up the nation bound to have more interesting and appalling characters for you next time so tune into the program Special thanks go out to Sandy and Jong-do for contributing to the content of the show. If you like the podcast, please give us a rating and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. I'm Mark. See you soon.